Good morning and Christian greetings to each one of you. It's good to see you here. And it's good to have Dwight and Susie here with us this morning as well, and uh, as well as each one of you. And uh, certainly a uh, pleasant fall morning, um, a lot cooler than what we've been having, but um, it is, it's pleasant out there. <clears throat> this morning, I'm going to be looking at um, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 3. And before we uh, go there, just a few introductory comments and so forth. I thought it was particularly appropriate the uh, comments that Nate made this morning, while not referenced directly in those words in this chapter, it certainly relates. And uh, the idea of peace, um, as, and we'll see this uh, as you think about the title. The first four chapters of 1 Corinthians deal with uh, factions or divisions in the church there. Um, Paul, these had developed since Paul was there several years earlier. And Paul addressed this several different ways. I mean, he, these factions are there, and it's apparently a fairly serious problem. And he takes an approach of... Um, of addressing this from a number of different angles. So in chapter 1, Paul is making clear that the cross of Christ, or uh, and as abhorrent as it was at that time, was a common denominator, a common aspect of all believers across the spectrum. And in the end, Christians all share equally in the cross of Jesus because we're equally sinful and condemned apart from the cross. Then chapter 2, he changes the emphasis and focuses on the Spirit of God or the Holy Spirit as the only source of true wisdom. And any intellectualism, any um, wisdom apart from not being grounded in the Holy Spirit is foolishness. And so all believers, uh, regardless of educational background, of social status or ethnicity, they all have the Holy Spirit within them, and as a result, have access to the very mind of Christ. Why then the factions, if God's Spirit is that unifying factor? Then in chapter 3 here, Paul introduces yet another angle to address these internal factions that have developed in this church. The idea that Christians focused on themselves damaged the church because we're designed to focus on Jesus Christ and build the church together. And so I've entitled this morning's message, Maturity Unites. And that whole idea of peace or perfect peace certainly is embedded in all of this as well, even though it's not directly referenced. So I'd like for you to stand as we read chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians. <clears throat> I'm going to read this from the King James Version, and then throughout the sermon I'll be referencing more uh, from the English Standard Version as well. And I, brethren, could not speak unto you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal, even as unto babes in Christ. I have fed you with milk and not with meat, for hitherto you were not able to bear it, neither yet now are ye able, for ye are yet carnal. For whereas there is among you envying and strife and divisions, are ye not carnal and walk as men? For while one saith, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are ye not carnal? 
Who then is Paul, and who is Apollos, but ministers by whom ye believed, even as the Lord gave to every man? I have planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then neither, he, neither is he that planteth anything, neither he that watereth, but God that giveth the increase. Now he that planteth and hath, sorry, now he that planteth and he that watereth are one, and every man shall receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are laborers together with God, ye are God's husbandry, ye are God's building. According to the grace of God which is given unto me, a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another buildeth thereon. But let every man take heed how he buildeth thereupon. For other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if any man build upon this foundation gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest. For the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide, which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so by fire. Know ye not that ye are the temple of God, and the Spirit of God dwelleth in you? If any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy, for the temple of God is holy, which temple ye are. Let no man deceive himself. If any man among you seemeth to be wise in this world, let him become a fool, that he may be wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. For it is written, He taketh the wise in their own craftiness, and again, the Lord knoweth the way the thoughts of the wise, that they are vain. Therefore, let no man glory in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, all are yours, and ye are Christ's, and Christ is God's. You may be seated. <clears throat> So I've divided this into several paragraphs or sections that we're going to look at together. Uh, and we're going to walk through this passage. And there's a lot here that I think that uh, I found uh, insightful and, and interesting to think about. And um, probably some new aspects that I had not really considered before in just reading this passage without really digging in and studying it. But first of all, he starts out here with the idea of um, the, what the maturity level is of the Corinthian believers. So who are the carnal or the people of the flesh, as the English Standard Version puts it? Other translations use that as well. So is there such a thing as a carnal Christian or a fleshly Believer, or is that a contradiction of terms? And I have heard that argued both ways. Um, you know, that there is really no such thing as a carnal Christian. That's contradictory. But when you look at it closely, the first two verses, uh, or the first verse and part of the second verse, is actually quite complementary. Um, uh, it's, it's ba well, let's read it. It says, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. So he is 
starting out here, he calls them brothers. You know, and that includes brothers and sisters. It's inclusive, family. And he recognizes them as part of God's family. But he also, I believe, is referring back to when he was there in person. So at that point, I could not address you as spiritual people. And so uh, when he first introduced them to Christ, they were literally babes in Christ. I mean, they were uh, infants, and they could not tolerate more mature food. And so, you know, he couldn't, he couldn't talk to them. They could only digest milk at that time. And that's normal. Uh, that's true in most cases. When a person becomes a believer, that's, they just have limited ability to understand uh, Christianity or, you know, or the deeper things of, of Christianity and so forth. So the Greek word that is used here, translated as carnal or flesh, uh, there's actually two different slight, we'll get to this a little bit later, but the next time and this time, it's not exactly the same. There's a slight deviation. They're translated the same generally. But this term uh, means what one commentator described or translated as fleshy. Um, not fleshly, but fleshy. And um, Lenski described it this way, is that you carry a bad load, but will soon be rid of most of it. And so that's the idea here. You're a babe in Christ, and you've brought your baggage of sinfulness with you, and you may still be carrying a bunch of that, but hopefully that will go away over time. And so that's the normal process of ridding oneself of old ways of thinking and acting. But then in the end of verse 2, he changes his tone. So this first part is just normal. But now he comes and says, now, and even now you are not ready, for you are still of the flesh. So after spending 18 months with them, and initially, and now several years having passed since then, he's contacting them again or writing to them again. Paul's letting know that in all this time, there has really been minimal maturity, spiritual growth or maturity in them. And so here, the word that's translated flesh or carnal, is just a slight variation from the previous one, but there's an important distinction here. And this would be more fleshly. And the way that Nolensky describes this is that you follow a bad norm and refuse to get rid of it. So previously is that you still have it, but you're hoping to get rid of it, or you're, you, within the idea, and here it's hanging on to that. And so this indictment by Paul indicates an intentional retaining of pre-conversion thinking and actions. And he's saying that is not acceptable. Infants mature into children, children mature into adults, that's the normal progression, but that's not what he was seeing here with the Corinthian believers. A five-year-old that still is living only off of milk is not normal. Neither is an adult that acts like a five-year-old normal. But the progression is normal um, and so forth. And we see this analogy or this uh, picture 
in other places where the, the description of matu spiritual maturity is described in this way. Hebrews 6.1, therefore let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. And so the idea of progressing uh, at, with time and, uh, and growing into maturity. And then Ephesians 4.14, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about with every wind of doctrine. So both of these indicate that there's a time and place for immaturity, but then that is to develop into maturity. Now, an ex interesting exercise that I would love to that you do is if you would just take a minute and grade your spiritual maturity on a continuum of like from infanthood to adulthood. I'm just curious, uh, where do you believe that you truly are in the continuum of spiritual maturity? Um, I would love if you would actually write something down or have something definite in mind. I don't know if you do or not. But what is God telling us about our level of immaturity? Is it a normal kind of maturing, or is it blatantly abnormal? And after you've done that, or after, even as you think about that, maybe you want to even reevaluate after we look at the next few verses, because that's what was really eye-opening to me. He continues describing the immature characteristics of the Corinthians. He says, For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in the human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not merely human? The reality is that envying or jealousy and strife divide. It never does anything to unify. Those kinds of attitudes will always divide. Some translations actually include divisions as another characteristic beyond the envying and strife. But it is the jealousy and the strife that causes the divisions. And when envy or jealousy and strife are present in a person, they are reverting to their human nature. It's not a spirit, it's not Christ-likeness, it's not spiritual maturity, it is spiritual immaturity rather than love, forgiveness, and forbearance. And so these two characteristics are identified here as, as very destructive. Um, and, and so it's something to, that we need to be careful about and be aware of in our own lives. The Holy Spirit... I don't, believe, I don't believe the Holy Spirit and genuine spirituality can thrive in that kind of environment. I'm not saying it can't, um, I'm not saying that it goes away immediately, but it certainly can't thrive and it can't grow in that kind of environment. Envy and strife are both rooted in selfishness and pride. I want what others have. I want what you have. I want what he has. And I will fight for what I want. I will do whatever it takes to get what I want. Um, 
it is a uh, demanding, it's uh, finding something wrong with what the way things are done. The grass is always greener elsewhere. It's those kinds of, of attitude. Immature believers will demand their rights, think their way is best, and want others to agree and promote their perspective. That's a sign of immature believers. And then on top of that, to seek praise or to praise other humans, so to, to seek praise from other humans or to praise other humans is dangerous because that's also taking the focus off Jesus Christ and it's putting on, on people. And it's ultimately competing with Jesus and ultimately attacking him, whether we it's intentional or not, that's what it's doing. And so as I was thinking about all of this and how relevant really a lot of this stuff is certainly in the church and I wonder what would happen if churches really thought about or uh, conducted themselves with this in mind and then while not the church we see this very exact this exact divisive and destructive results of envy and jealousy and strife in the government culture our culture right now as well. I mean, it's not the church, and I'm not attempting to equate it, but you see the results of that kind of an environment. You know, the demands of rights, the desire for praise from others, and the power over others, that's all evident uh, all around us. And that is divisive. It will tear down. It will destroy the church. <clears throat> Ray Steadman, in his uh, book, Letters to the Troubled Church, to a troubled church. I'm going to read a paragraph um, or two here that he, I was like, this really sums it up well. One of the signs that you are growing and maturing as a Christian is that you are learning to ingest the meat of God's word, including those passages on loving one another and forgiving one another in the body of Christ. When Christians are able to be agents of peace and mutual acceptance, they demonstrate spiritual maturity. And I think that's so true. When you're agents of peace and mutual acceptance, that's a demonstration of spiritual maturity. When a church is torn by jealousy and strife, however, that church is demonstrating widespread immaturity. Wherever you have the baby Christians who don't grow and mat more mature, you can count on it. There will be division and strife. Immature Christians like to get their own way. They like to gossip. They have not learned to love one another with Christ-like love. And then he concludes here with this by saying, God gave us his spirit to change our thinking so that we would stop competing against each other and begin loving each other. That's spiritual maturity. I think that's a very good way of just uh, thinking about this and uh, being aware that our attitudes have a lot to do with um, reflect a lot of our spiritual maturity. <clears throat> so continuing on then in verse 5, uh, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted Apollos water, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, 
and each one will receive his wages according to his labor, for we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. So Paul now emphasizes that Paul and Apollos are not in competition with each other. Uh, rather, they are both working for Christ on the same team. They're, they're not identical in giftedness uh, or personality or strengths, but they are working for the same cause. Uh, the word servants, uh, or it's translated servants in the ESV and ministers in uh, the King James, that is not referring to being a slave, as servants is often translated in the New Testament, but rather it is the same word that is translated minister and deacon in other places. So he's saying that we're ministers or deacons um, through which you believed. And the reality is, and this is a good lesson for all of us, is, you know, so they were saying, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, that putting confidence and trust in any human leader will ultimately disappoint. That's just the reality across the board because we're humans. Humans will fail, they will make mistakes, and if that's the focus, it will lead to division. If, if that's what, uh, what you're putting your focus and confidence and trust in, because our confidence and trust has to be in God in Jesus Christ, not in fellow humans. And uh, Stedman continues, we Christians are not competitors against each other, we are partners with each other, and each of us has a unique role to play. And then he continues, and so some of you may think that, well, this doesn't really apply to you. In God's view, all Christians are ministers, without exception. All are given gifts by the Spirit. All are expected to use those gifts to serve God and build up the church. And so in that way, this, this includes all of us, that that, that is, what is um, what is needed here. And then Lansky leaves this challenge, is what I am doing encouraging and enabling people to worship the true living God in holiness and in truth? If not... Perhaps, am I perhaps being untrue to the foundation that has been laid? And so um, that's, that's also an important part to consider is like, what are we doing and, and are we uh, encouraging and enabling people to worship um, God? I think the key point in this section is that Paul is making uh, it clear that God is the one who gives the growth. It's not Paul, it's not Apollos. They, had, they did their part, but it's only God that gives the, the increase. Um, ultimately, and he says this, that uh, people are nothing. I don't remember exactly the, the, says, you know, he who plants and waters is nothing, uh, is not anything, uh, but, they are nothing, but so it's all about what about God and what He's doing, and so there's only really one correct conclusion about all of this is that men are nothing, and God is not only something, but He is everything, and so men are nothing, and God is everything. 
I've read this passage many times, and it wasn't until I was really focusing on digging into this that I noticed something as he concludes this. He says, we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, you are God's building. I always read those as basically synonymous or everything, but notice he says, we are God's fellow workers, and I think he's referring to himself and Apollos. We are God's fellow workers. And then he turns it and says, you, the Corinthian church, are God's field. You are God's building. Now, I don't know that that distinction is important because I don't think he, he's saying that the Corinthians are not God's fellow workers. I don't think that's what he's saying at all. But what I do think that he's pointing out, he, he makes a distinction, but notice he, he says, leaves the possessive gods in each one of these. The emphasis is on, on God. You are, we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. You are God's building. And so the emphasis is more on being God's possessions than, um, than the fact of who it is. Uh, we're nothing apart from God, and we're never going to accomplish anything worthwhile apart from, uh, uh, separate from God, because it's all about God and we are nothing. Continuing on here, um, in verse 10, verses 10 through 17 is maybe a bit more of a complex or not, a little bit difficult to understand exactly what he's referring to here. And, um, so I, I'll read the, down through verse 15 here. Um, According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let one, each, each one take care how he builds upon it, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. So he continues the metaphor of the church being a building here. He states that he describes himself, Paul describes himself as a skilled master builder, laying the foundation. But I don't think that, in looking at this, I don't believe it's a boastful statement because of the way of the context that it is. The foundation that he laid is that of Jesus Christ. He makes that perfectly clear. It's stated later, but it also implies that God is the master architect or the designer. And it's more like Paul is simply a contractor carrying out that work. He is a master builder, but he's not the one that designed it. He's not the architect behind it. So Paul laid the foundation, and, but you know, in his absence, someone else has been building on this foundation. Um, and... You know, it's, it's good to pay attention to how it is being built. The wise will pay attention to how it's being built. So Paul was in Corinth 18 months initially, and then 
and established the church, and obviously someone, and likely several men, were appointed to carry on that responsibility when Paul was no longer there. So I think this section, it seems like this section is addressing those men in particular, specifically addressing those men because they were building on the foundation that Paul laid. So he's emphatic that the foundation was Jesus Christ. You know, men can craft alternate foundations, but they will collapse, um, and they, they're not going to endure. But Paul then focuses to the question of building materials. And this is where, um, and actually I should just mention, and I'm sure some of you kind of know this or may be aware of this, but this passage, I believe, is often is the basis for the Catholic Church having come up with the idea of purgatory. And I don't believe that it has any relevance or any basis to this, but this is what, what has been used for that. But he's focusing now to the idea of building materials. But there's several things that we should notice. Paul is not questioning the foundation on which they're building. Uh, that's, not a, that's not a question. And he states clearly that building is happening. The church is being built. But he makes a distinguish, uh, but he distinguishes between the materials that are being used to build. And there's the two categories of three of each, gold, silver, precious stones, wood stays, wood hay, and stubble. And obviously when put through a fire, it's obvious that the latter three would burn and the first three would not. And so while I believe that Paul is addressing the leadership of the church there, I don't believe it's limited to that in thinking about that as far as today or even then necessarily. I believe it extends to teachers and to influencers and other builders of the church. It's those people that are, that are making a difference and are, uh, are doing things to build up. Um, and so it is possible to build on the foundation of Jesus Christ in different ways. And how do you differentiate that? You know, some teachings have lasting and significant value. Others may be faulty or simply inferior in value and significance. Um, and I think that we need to be aware of that. I mean, I'm human. I am sure that I have said things across this pulpit that would fall in that latter category of being insignificant. Um, you know, it's inferior ideas. It's maybe faulty motivations or even faulty actions of what you do, um, but, but there's building happening. Um, maybe not perfectly, but there's building happening. And one can build in many different ways, um, and, but the results are going to differ, and some's going to be much more lasting than others. Our motivation matters. Why do we build? Why do we invest in others? Why is it that we're doing what we do? And also, what we do matters. You know, some things are just simply more durable uh, than other things. 
So the idea of building matters. But then in the end, and it says in that day, and I think you can assume um, or believe at the end of time or the judgment day, if you will, that that true value and durability is revealed by fire. Some of it just isn't worth, wasn't really that beneficial. Other is. And so what we do and say and teach matters because we're accountable for it all. But the key here is that the individuals are building the church. And, you know, um, there will be rewards and losses based on what we have done. But it's not a matter of a loss of salvation because the building was happening on the foundation of Jesus Christ. Now, verse 16 and 17 addresses those not building up the church but rather tearing it down. And so Paul begins with a rhetorical question there. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? And then continues. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy and you are that temple. So this context makes it clear that he is addressing the collective group of the Corinthian believers. You are God's temple. God's spirit is in you. But it also applies individually. Um, But it, it applies to a group of believers together. God's people, uh, this is a quote from Lenski, God's people are one spiritual temple or sanctuary. And wherever God's people are, there that sanctuary is found. So we are a spiritual temple here this morning. We're a spiritual temple when we gather as a family. We're a spiritual uh, temple when we meet outside. Um, It doesn't matter, but but it's it's a collective group of believers, and and we are uh, a spiritual temple. So notice that earlier... Uh, in the first section there, he talked about, he stated that if anyone builds, and he continues. Now, in this, these verses, he says, if anyone destroys, or King James says, if anyone defiles, uh, it means ruins or corrupts or tears down. So he's contrasting, too. There's those that build, and then there's those that tear down, those that destroy. And the contrast is striking, because here it makes it very clear. God does not tolerate that which tears down, which ruins, which destroys his temple, his people. So the Corinthian church was God's temple. God was protective of them from those that wanted to defile and destroy what was happening there. The same way we're God's temple. It's holy. And I believe that God will come to our defense. God will, it says destroy. God will destroy or ruin that which defiles or destroys his temple. Um, This group, us. It's probably not immediate, but it does indicate that God is very protective of his temple, of his people of his building built on the foundation.
of Jesus Christ. Continuing in verse 18. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast in men. In concluding this part, this issue of church divisions or this aspect of church divisions, Paul addresses each believer individually. He says, let no one deceive himself. And um, it took me a bit to actually recognize what this is truly saying. It doesn't say, let no one be deceived. It doesn't say, um, yeah, that we're to be watch out for those that we're not deceived by others. But rather, he says, let no one deceive himself. Self-deception is very, very dangerous because it comes from within ourselves. It doesn't come from anywhere else. It doesn't come externally, but it's deception that rises up within ourselves. It differs from being misled or deceived by another person. And I think the following phrase, sentence after that, he says, if anyone thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. Paraphrasing that concept for myself, if you think you can do something or if you think you've accomplished something, become a fool. Or that's not language that we use today. Or, but basically, reconsider. I think you know if you think you've accomplished something, reconsider. If you think you can do something, be careful. If you think you've grasped something, be cautious. If you think you can fill in the blank. Be careful, step back, and take a look. But it's just that, that voice of caution that, um, again, bringing the focus back around on God, as we'll see here in a little bit. But we have the capacity to deceive ourselves, and let's be careful about that. So he said, let no one deceive himself, and then he concludes this part that I read with, uh, let no one boast in men. You know, in today's information age, there is so much content available, it requires a lot of discernment. Um, I don't know of any way of putting it. And in the midst of all of that is the tendency for certain people to be elevated to unhealthy um, levels of influence and so forth, and that we can even be influences. So it's let no one boast in men. The Corinthians were very focused on what certain men said and did and making it an issue in the church. I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, I am of Cephas. And so we need to be careful that we don't elevate men and women, whether in the church or outside the church, 
inappropriately. We need to boast only in Jesus Christ, not in another person. Because when we do, um, we are setting ourselves up for potential self-deception and so forth. Then he concludes in verses 21, the end of 21 through 23. For all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, or the world, or life, or death, or the present, or the future, all are yours. And you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. All things are yours for the Corinthians, um, and ours for today. Whether it's the factions that he identifies here, the various factions that were present, the uh, Paul, Apollos, and Cephas, the whole cosmos, from the world to life and death within that, um, the present and the future, including all of eternity, is included in that all things are yours. And he reiterates that after that, all are yours. You know, at this point, the Corinthians should have no need anymore to, to have these I am statements. I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, I am of Cephas. Because the Corinthian church is one body. And it's all centered around the foundation of Jesus Christ and the person of Jesus Christ. He's, and it's not one individual member over another. All things are yours. And when we begin to understand this, why wouldn't we fall down on our knees and worship the one that makes us so spiritually wealthy? <clears throat> and then, so all these things are ours, and we belong to Jesus Christ, the foundation of the church, the basis of our hope, of our hope and, uh, and salvation, and then Jesus Christ belongs to God. As I just pondered those last verses, it's just like, wow. It's like uh, there's, it's hard to even begin to comprehend, but, but he's bringing it all together, and that all that's really important in the end is Jesus Christ. And if everything, if our lives come out of that, there will be maturity, there will be unity, and the divisions, the heresies, the factions, the turmoil will all go away because everyone is focused on, on Jesus Christ. So my takeaway from this, this chapter, and I'm sure there's others as well, but as I was studying it, my takeaway is that immaturity divides. Christians that are focused on themselves are immature and are going to damage the church in contrast with maturity, unites. Christians are designed to build on the foundation of Jesus Christ and then build up others in the body of Christ. I'm going to have Darren lead a closing song. I didn't give him warning, but he had mentioned it. The church's one foundation seems like such an appropriate song to sing in relation to this. So let's stand together, and uh, do you know what number it is? Uh, <clears throat> five something. Hold on a second. Or no, three. 370.